Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the backside of your message notes or on page 758 in the Worship Bible. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of God. Well, it's a real privilege and an honor to be able to uh, be with you today and to, to share the scripture. And let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the beautiful time of worship we've already had this morning for these great, great songs of faith written not for shopping malls, but for sanctuaries. And uh, thank you for this special sanctuary we have here where we can gather in your great outdoors and join with all of creation in giving words to what creation says inanimately. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. And now as we are here expectantly hearing from you, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and would help us to learn some things that would really help us in our lives so that we can be in the world and change agents in the world, even as Jesus was when he came. For he said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So give us wisdom today, both for the speaker and the hearer, as we all listen carefully to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, in the past few weeks, as we've been preparing for Christmas We've been taking an extended look at the opening verses of this Gospel of John. You may notice, if you've been here every week, we've been right in these first 14 verses. I've never done anything like this before, but I've really enjoyed just sort of picking up every little piece I can out of this prologue to the Gospel of John. We've been taking an extended look at this poignant and powerful prologue to the Gospel of John. And in the process, if you've been with us, you know that we have been learning the story behind the story of angels and shepherds and Mary and Joseph uh, uh, and, and the baby in Bethlehem. We've been learning the story behind the story because John, in his gospel, has been peeling back the curtain to show us not the facts of the story, but rather its, its meaning. That this baby, that baby born in Bethlehem that day was, in fact, the fully divine Word of God. And that this baby, that baby born in Bethlehem that day was, in fact, the fully human Word made flesh. Both divine and human. Fully divine, fully human. And that this baby, that baby born in Bethlehem that night was the light of life who conquers the darkness that is in this world, that, that helpless little innocent child born to peasant parents away far from home. This little baby was, in fact, the light of life. The one who at the beginning of time had said with the Father, let there be light. He was the agent of creation. And he came to conquer the darkness that is in the world. 
And if all this is true about that baby, this has some very powerful implications for the world that we live in. It means, for example, that we are not alone in the universe, that there is a a personal God, a God who is himself a loving triunity, a God who out of love brought this world and all of us into being. We're not alone in the universe. There's a God of love who exists before the universe began and when the universe is remade into a new universe, there is a God of love in whom there is light and life and power. And so that God brought this world into being. If this is true, it has a second powerful implication for the world. It means that this universe, the one we live in, is not a meaningless cosmic accident, but rather that life in general, and our lives in particular, has meaning and purpose. And that this purpose is ultimately tied up into the powerful purposes of the God whose love birthed this world. Yes, the world is not a meaningless cosmic accident, but there's a purpose behind it, a meaningfulness to it, that the world matters, and it matters in a profound way because God made us and has a plan for this world. It means, thirdly, that that, that our humanity, the very fabric of our human selves, has been forever blessed by the fact that God himself once lived in human skin. That our bodies, as well as our souls, matter to God. For God once inhabited a human body, all of life, human and, and created life, has a sacramental quality to it. Not because it is divine, but because a divine God made it all. And that ultimately, a divine God came to live in human habitation. So our humanity matters. And it means, fourthly, that the paradox of human longing for light and life and love, we long for a moral universe, a sense of justice, a sense of right and wrong. It exudes out of every and every culture. Certain things are right and certain things are wrong, that, that human longing that we have. But it's a paradox, isn't it? Because not only do we long for it, we also resist it, don't we? We want for there to be morality and right and wrong, but we want to cut the corner a little bit. Isn't that a paradox to you? Why does humanity, all of humanity, for all of time, have a sense of justice and an inability to live by the standards of the... What is that going on? These are powerful and world-changing concepts. I know I'm being a little philosophical here this morning, but I can't help it as I introduce this message to you. Because these are fundamental life questions that philosophers ask, that very smart people ask. You know, uh, is, are we here alone or is there more to the universe than just what we can see? Does this universe have meaning and purpose or is it a cosmic accident beginning in dust and ending in dust? Um, do, do our human selves matter or do they not matter? Is there anything special about the human race? And why is it that we long for right things and yet want to uh, things, long for things to be right, but we also want to cut corners? Why do we have that going on? These are profound and world-changing concepts. And incredible as they seem, they are not merely articles of faith for us. For even after 2,000 years, the Christian message is still the best explanation for some of these most pressing philosophical questions in life, like, 
questions like, why is there something rather than nothing? Now, some of you say, well, that's what stupid philosophers talk about. (laughs) But it is a deeply profound philosophical question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Check it out. You'll see Christianity gives you an answer for that. Or a second philosophical question. Why is the universe so finely tuned as to suggest it was built for the express purpose of housing human life? Now, you might say, well, of course, we're here. No, that's not the point. Why is it that everything fit together in such a way, in such an unbelievable set of mathematical accidents so that you're sitting right there and we're having a conversation? Why? Why? The fine-tuning of the universe is a great question that is asked not just by Christians, but by scientists as well. Christianity gives you an answer for that question. And thirdly, why do humans desperately crave a moral universe and yet fail to live in accordance with their own code of morality? Why do we do that? Why is it true for everyone? The Christian message gives to you an answer to that question, and it's a pretty good one. Yes. You see, Christianity can stand up to rigorous intellectual inquiry. I know we're just a cowboy church, (laughs) but that doesn't mean we can't think deeply about things. And it does stand up to rigorous intellectual inquiry. It has good answers for these questions, which outside of the Christian message almost seem to have no good answers. This is why you get speculation about such things as multiverses. You know what a multiverse is? Millions of universes, right? Which we have no evidence for. Zero, as far as I can know. But which we come to describe, come to believe in sometimes because it's so unbelievable that this one would have ever happened this way that we must have assumed that many more started and ours just happens to turn out this way. That's the issue of multiverses. Well, that's one way of coming up with that. Or it could be what Christians believe it to be, that this universe exists because God created it. However it is that he created it, however long he took, it took, whatever kinds of processes he used in the beginning, God. God. Yeah. In the beginning, God. And that the questions about why we want, uh, why we have sense of morality and immorality and all these things, the Christian message can stand up to rigorous intellectual inquiry. That's why we should be very honest as we think about it. We don't have to buttress up the Christian faith with lots of uh, other kinds of art. It stands well on its own two feet. Yes, it does stand. That's some serious issues with regard to the Christian message. It begins to poke at the deepest part of what human life is all about. Yes. We can be grateful that the Christian message still is, in, is intellectually credible. After all these years, it's even more credible, I think, today than it ever has been. But we can, must never be content just with that knowledge. For the text is not finished with us yet, the verses we are looking at this morning. Because in this text, we see that the Christian message, the message about Jesus, is not just something to understand and accept, but it is meant to be a life-changing message. 
that individual humans must make a response to. Every human being, this text teaches us, is confronted with a personal choice about Jesus. Every human being must come to discover that Jesus is not merely a subject to discuss. Jesus is a person to whom we must respond. And each of us is responsible for our response to Jesus. That's what John 1, 9 to 13 is saying. Listen to it again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Some were ignorant about him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Some rejected him. Verse 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Yes, Christianity is not merely a philosophical answer to questions about life. It is a personal response of faith to the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so John, as he opens this gospel, wants us to see in such clear fashion that though this is that Jesus is the God who made this world and now lives in this world and came to bring light to this world, that there is a, uh, a resistance to the light. In fact, one text in John says, men loved darkness rather than light. And if you look in your own heart, you know it's true. I mean, you know it's true. If you have any sense of honesty with you, you know there are times you just want it to be, you just want your motives covered up just a little bit. How many of you have ever gone past a cop too fast, and before you ever got picked up, because you almost never do, right? Before you got picked up, you instinctively started to measure your excuses for when you would. And one of your excuses probably was going to be, I didn't know you were there. I didn't know what the speed was. And it's a total lie. You knew you were, you knew it. That's just a small instance of a large human issue. We love darkness rather than light, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. Well, so we have a response to make, and there are way too many people who have an intellectual assent to the person of Jesus, but have never given their hearts to him. Like the man who knows this is the woman he wants to marry, but he's never been willing to give his heart to her, to make a commitment to her. This woman who knows this is the man that she wants to spend the rest of her life with, but is never willing to commit her life to that man. There are a lot of Christians like that. Or a lot of people like that, rather, I should say. A lot of people like that. This text teaches us very clearly that when Jesus came into the world, many in the world did not recognize him. That's what that first one says, verse 10. They didn't, know, they didn't recognize him. I mean, just look like any other Joe down the street, right? Just look like any other guy. A lot of people just didn't, they passed him by. It also teaches us that when Jesus came to his own place, 
many of them did not receive him. They rejected him. And it's in the gospel stories, in Luke and all, in John and all the gospels. You know, John is wanting us to know right away that there are a lot of people who, who rejected him, rejected him. And in fact, it's saying he went to his own neighborhood, his own home. It's like you come back to your own house and you say, Mom, here I am. And Mom says, I don't know who you are. What are you doing here? There are people to whom that has happened, rejected by their families. Yeah. That's what happened to Jesus. It was his own, it says he came to his own place, his own things, his own world, his own neighborhood, and his own people did not receive him. There are those who do know who Jesus is, but do not personally receive him. And then it also says, though, that those who did receive him were given the right to become God's children. And this right was not based upon their heredity or their human effort or their good deeds or their desire, but that it was a right given purely and expressly by divine fiat, by the authority. They gave them the right, the power, the exousia, the, the authority to become children of God. Just like when that guy stopped me on the side of the road who said I was going too fast. I'm sure he was wrong. Um, if I had to, I could say, on what authority? Could he say, I'm bigger than you? I've got a gun and you don't? In fact, we had a short conversation. He said, maybe I told you this. Well, you had three options, he said. One, you can contest the ticket. Two, I should say this is a pretty hypothetical situation, but it's not. It's true, you know. You can contest the ticket. Two, you can pay the ticket. Three, you can go to traffic court. And I said, aren't there four options? He said, what? I said, I said, the fourth one would be mercy. <laughs> I wish he had laughed like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? We get mercy. We deserve judgment. I just thought of that. I'll remember, mark that down, Susan, so I don't forget in the future. Yeah. Um, the, um, but what was that cop's authority if I had asked him, it wasn't his, that he was bigger than me. In fact, he wasn't. It wasn't that he was faster than me. In fact, it was, it was the authority that was given to him by a badge. That was represented by a state. It was an authority he had not based upon himself, but which was granted to him. Right? When we respond in faith to Jesus, we are given the authority to become children of God. It's not because... We're bigger or better or faster or have a bigger gun than the guy next to us. It's because we've been given that authority by the word of God. That's what that text is saying. And that when we get this, we get it not just because we have human effort, but it's given purely by God. So Of course, this means each of us must be personally responsible to Jesus. Each one of us and all of us. None of us can be indifferent to him. To be indifferent is to be in a state of rejection. Now, there are times when we need to be investigating Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. A courtship is a good thing for a guy and a girl to do, to court together, to get to know one another. But at some point, they need to make a commitment to one another. Yes. And until we've made that commitment to Jesus, we're not a follower of his family, of Jesus yet. But if we respond to him in faith, we are given the glorious privilege of being part of God's 
family. We are given the right to become children of God. What does it mean to become a child of God, part of God's family? Well, let me tell you three things that it does not mean as we finish out our time. First of all, it's not automatic. It's not automatic. We are not automatically part of God's family. Now, let me make sure I clarify this. Yes, in a general sense, all of us are God's children. We all are. All of humanity, all of humanity is here because of God's God's love and grace. There is a general sense of uh, fatherhood that God has. Paul said to those Athenian uh, philosophers, we are all God's offspring. He quoted that that, uh, secular text as a way of showing we all belong. But he was saying to them and the scriptures will say to us that we are in a state of rebellion against our father. That's how we are born. That's why, though you never teach it, One of the first words your little child learns is what? Mine. (laughs) No, you teach them no. (laughs) They say mine. It's amazing to see that. I'm watching little grandchildren, our little grandson Lincoln. It's, you know, put that that truck over here. He's just fine over here. But as soon as someone else wants to come to that truck, what does he go? Mine. We've got that within ourselves. We are in a state of rebellion against God. And, and that's why it says he came to his, his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own people were not necessarily his own children. You see that? They had to respond in faith to him. It is an illusion to think that because God is our creator and loves us and gave himself for us, that we are automatically welcomed into his family. We've got to come home. We've got to, as in the story of the prodigal son, come to our senses. You remember that prodigal son story? He went off on his own. He said, Dad, give me my share of the estate, which is a terrible affront, and the dad did not have to do it. In fact, the dad was probably shamed by his culture for giving his inheritance ahead of time. But he let the son go off. And the son ruined his life. And he sat there embarrassing himself, hungry and starved and penniless and feeling worthless. And he thinks to himself, he said, finally, he says, he comes to his senses. And he says, even my father's servants are treated better than this. I'm no longer worthy to be called his son, but maybe I could be his slave. And so he makes that long journey away from a far-off country in this parable. And the Bible says, Jesus in the story says, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and ran to him. No self-respecting grown-up, especially a wealthy one, would go running. But this father did. And when that son came and said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father interrupted him. He never got to the part that said, make me one of your hired servants. That was part of the speech he had prepared. He never got to that part. The father embraced him, put a ring on his finger, welcomed him, gave him shoes for his feet, brought him home and said, let's have a party for this son who was lost has been found. Yes, we are not automatically 
God's children, we are in a state of rebellion. Uh, Brian, I'm going to go to this mic. You don't mind? Like I'm kick, picking out a little bit, kicking out a little bit every so often from that mic. Um, the, uh, um, so it's not automatic, okay? It's what it says. They needed to be, but another thing about it is it is not inherited. We don't get it through our parents or through our country. Becoming a child of God is not inherited. It says he came, who were, uh, to those who did relieve, he gave the right to become children of God who were, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not like you, you because your parents were Christians, you're a Christian. Or because you think you live in a Christian country, we're all Christians here. No, we're not. In every case, just because we have a family or a heritage of Christianity, you don't pick it up just genetically like that. That's what he says right there. It's not just for those who were of his own blood. It also is not, these are three things, it's not automatic, it's not inherited, it's not earned. We don't get it by human effort. Notice what it says. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of the man. Not by trying harder, not by a, or it says like a, a husband's decision. In other words, we think babies are made because a man made a decision, right? He's saying, nope, there's more to this than that. It's not that we can make that decision by human effort. Many of us are, are perfectly happy if Jesus gives to us a performance plan that we can meet up to. In fact, that is our instinctive thing about God. We think that God is going to reward us based upon our merit, but that is not the gospel. In fact, it is a sin to think that's the way in. Yeah. No. In fact, in that prodigal son story, we have this very important interchange at the end of it that often is forgotten. The prodigal, this is found in Luke 15. Um, uh, the prodigal son comes back, gets welcomed to the family. Let's have a party, kill a fat calf. And it should be a happy story, right? But if you know the story, you know what happens next, right? This younger brother had an older brother, and he was out there working the fields. He sees a party going on, and, he, and he, calls, uh, he calls a friend, and he says, he calls a worker that works for him and says, what's going on? And the, the person says, your, your brother came home, and dad's throwing a party for him. And then it says, what does it say? He refused to go in. And so again, the father has to come out to the son, the elder brother, who says to his father, father, I have slaved for you all these years and you never even gave me a goat for my friends he was a son but he felt like a slave he had taken the place of a slave i have a slave he had this sense that his relationship with his father was based upon his performance he misunderstood the whole nature of his relationship with his father yes and the father said no he said to them his son son this brother of yours, he says, this brother of yours was lost and is found. We had to celebrate. And it ends with that question, did the older brother come in or not? The one who had been the good boy was still on the outside looking in when the party was going on. 
The one who had shamed the family and made a mockery of his own name and his father's name and lost his inheritance. The, this, the, the older brother still got his inheritance. Okay, um, the, uh, That brother, this one is welcome to the family. It's an upside down kingdom, isn't it? Why? Because there are a lot of people who want to get fat to heaven the old-fashioned way. They want to earn it. They want to earn it. No. Becoming a part of God's family is not automatic. It's not inherited. It's not earned. What is it then? Becoming a child of God. First of all, it is for everyone. No one is excluded from this welcome. No one, even the son who shamed the family name, lost the family money, comes back rags and in tatters and will always carry the stigma of what he did to everyone else except for his father. That son is welcomed in. He is welcome to become back into the place of fellowship with his father. He never lost his, uh, his sense of sonship with the father from the father's point of view, but he had to come back to it receive its benefits. It is for everyone, but to all who did receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did. That's a good word. All. All. Every one of us. It's not for one ethnic group. It's not for one geographical area. It's not for one uh, uh, socioeconomic group. It's for everyone. That's what it is. Number two, it is received by faith. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. That means that we need to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. It's as if Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom who says, I want to be your husband. Will you be my wife? I've done everything. I paid the bridal price I love you. I want to be with you. I want to share my life with you. And yet, at the end of that question, there must be an answer. Yes. Or as Mary said to the angel that day, when she said, you're going to be uh, the bearer of the Son of God, she said, be it unto me according to your word. Be it unto me according to your word. That's what we need to do. We receive it by faith. And if you have not received it, why wait anymore? Why wait anymore? Yes, there are those who reject, but do not be among those. There are those who ignore, but do not be among those. Be among those who lay down your life before the one who gave his life for you. It is received by faith, and finally, it is a divine gift. It is a divine gift. But all who received, did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. He puts the badge of child on you. He adopts you into his family. You are regenerated. You are born again. You become a brand new person. Yes. I enjoyed taking a ride with Richard on this trip, and one of the things he explained to me was that he said to me without any particular um, you know, coaxing on my part, well, I accepted Christ in May of 1980. He gave me the date. You, I can't remember the date, Richard, when it was, but May of 19... Sometimes we know the date. 
My father knew the date, April 13th, 1950. I don't know the date for myself. The date is not important. I do know my birth date. That's January 23rd, right? (laughs) But do you know your second birth date? Some of us do. Some of us don't. But we all need to have one because that's how you become a child of God. But for some of you, maybe your second birth date is December. What day is it? 10th, 2018. December. What? 16th. You said 10th. Hey, you got to give me a little slack. I was up late last night. I don't know what Jimmy's excuse is. I knew those. (laughs) Well, whatever the date, the 16th, oh my goodness. This could be the day when you respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hark the herald angels sing, says, uh, born to give them second birth. That's what Jesus wants to give to all of us. Let's respond in faith to him. As we close our time together, perhaps this will be the moment when you say, Lord, I want to respond to your invitation to be part of your family. I recognize that I need that. I ask you to forgive my sin, become the Lord of my life, and I will follow you the rest of my life. May this be the day when you respond in faith to Jesus. And then take the Lord's table with us as a symbol of your commitment to the one who gave his life for you. Let's have prayer while we close. Lord Jesus Christ, what a magnificent story. Story of a world created not by accident but by design. Of a humanity placed in it whom you love. A story redemption through Jesus. Father, help us to respond in faith to you. Help us to surrender our lives to the one who gave his life for us. Help us to know that the authority for that is not based on our ethnic background or our list of good deeds, our resume, so to speak, but simply because we responded in faith We may be like that battered son who shamed the family. We're welcome at the home too. Let us come home. We may be like that, uh, that, uh, you know, self-righteous son who says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lord, doesn't it amount? I've slaved for you all these years. And we need to lay down our pride and come before you simply responding in faith to you. There may be some today who, for whom this is that day. Help them to simply say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you want to make me a part of your family. I admit that I need you. I let go of the darkness in my life. I respond in faith to Jesus. I surrender my life to him. Thank you for making me your child. Teach me what it means to follow you. And I will do it the rest of my life. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.